Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Uh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Taking Charge of Your Treatment Schedule, and this is part two of Life with CLL, or Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. And um, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and the uh, CLL Society, um, and, um, and there are many other organizations that are actually working with us on this program as well, blood cancer organizations as well as um, cancer organizations. But I do want to give a special call out to the CLL Society, and you'll hear more from them during the call. Um, it's a wonderful resource for everybody living with CLL. It is the only CLL-specific um, nonprofit organization out there um, for getting resources and information, so it's a, it's a nice resource to have. Now, today's program is actually, um, you've all really responded to this program really um, remarkably. Um, uh, I think um, all of our collaborating organizations and the CLL Society and Cancer Care, we try to spread the word. That's always the issue, getting the word out to everybody. And then you've all been interested in this topic. So we have on the call today over 435 participants on the call. You come from all over the United States, so that means from uh, uh, rural and suburban and urban areas. And we also have international participants on the call from Australia, Bangladesh, Canada, India, and United Kingdom. So actually a bit from all over the world, actually, and it's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclix LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program, um, and uh, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Lindsay Roker, and Dr. Roker is a hematology medical oncology fellow, Department of Medicine, and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Roker is going to be addressing overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, including first-line treatment options, treatment for relapsed, refractory CLL, and value of retesting to determine treatment for second and third-line treatments. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Roker. Thank you so much, and it's very nice to be with, here with all of you today. Um, I wanted to start today with an overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, including the biology of the disease and a review of how this can affect patients. I also wanted to talk about our standard approaches to treatment, including when we start treatment, what we use for patients who have never been treated before, and then what treatments are available for patients after they've received their first treatment. And we'll also talk a bit about testing and what can be performed in CLL, and then how this guides our decision-making. So CLL is the most common leukemia in adults in the United States, and it's diagnosed in about 20,000 Americans every year. It's more common in men than in women, and patients are most commonly diagnosed in their 70s, though we see patients who are much younger and much older as well in our clinics. CLL is a cancer of a type of white blood cell called a B cell, which is also part of the immune system. And we're still unsure of exactly what causes CLL, but we know that there are genetic changes in these cancer cells that causes the bone marrow to produce many of them, and then they don't die after a normal lifespan in the same way that normal B cells would. And the result of these two abnormal processes is that these B cells accumulate, and that can result in a very high white blood cell count when, um, when we test the peripheral blood. And if we take a look in the bone marrow, we can also see that that's filled with CLL cells. And then it can also uh, cause enlargement of the lymph nodes or a big spleen, and those are both parts of the immune system. People are typically diagnosed after they have a routine blood test that shows a high white blood cell count, or they notice big lymph nodes, which can be in the neck or the armpits or the groin. And then a smaller proportion can also um, present with symptoms like fevers or night sweats or fatigue or weight loss. And to make the diagnosis, we perform an exam in our office and then a blood test as well. 
and this includes a test that's called flow cytometry, which you may have um, heard of before. And this is a test that looks at the proteins on the surface of the CLL cells. So it, do, it allows us to do a couple of things. First, it allows us to look at the cells and make sure that they truly look like CLL and it's not actually a different kind of leukemia or lymphoma. And the second is it allows us to count them. And um, when you're reading, you might notice that both the terms CLL and SLL are used. And there's some confusion about that sometimes. But these terms, CLL and SLL, actually refer to the same disease. So CLL is used when the disease is primarily in the blood, whereas SLL is used when can the cancer cells are predominantly in lymph nodes. And then when people are being, you know, first seen with a new diagnosis, some doctors can also perform additional tests like CT scans to look at the size of lymph nodes or the size of the spleen, or some doctors may perform a bone marrow biopsy, and that allows us to look at how much of the bone marrow, bone marrow space or, or um, you know, the factory for blood cells is being taken up by CLL. And CLL is a disease that exists on a spectrum. So some patients have very indolent disease that will never cause a significant problem, and they enjoy a normal lifespan just as they would if they didn't have CLL. And then for others, the disease can progress to the point that they need treatment, and for some it can be more aggressive, which means it requires treatment more quickly or it progresses and requires multiple lines of treatment. And we use genetic testing to give us some clue about how the CLL is going to behave. So um, your healthcare team might perform tests like a karyotype or specific testing for mutations in IGHV or TP53. Those are some of the big ones we think about. And the specific names aren't important, but these, these um, changes give us a sense of which people have CLL that's going to be more so slow-growing and which people might need therapy on the sooner side. These tests help us understand how a patient might do with a certain therapy, but they don't um, affect when we actually start treatment. So one of the most important things we think about with our patients um, who have CLL is when to start treatment. And there are five major reasons that cause us to start therapy for CLL. The first is anemia or a low hemoglobin, and that's a test that's done just in a normal CBC. When people are anemic, sometimes they have symptoms like shortness of breath, palpitations, or fatigue. And we use a hemoglobin cutoff often of around 10, though depending on how fast the hemoglobin is trending, we can, we can start at different cutoff points. The second is low platelets. When pl platelets get really low, people can have problems with bleeding, though we often try to intervene before that becomes an issue. And we also monitor that on a routine blood test. The third is big or bothersome lymph nodes. And this can happen where either the lymph nodes are sort of painful or they, or patients don't like how they look, or if a lymph node is in kind of an inconvenient spot, even a slight enlargement of that lymph node can cause problems that um, drive us to think about treatment sooner. The fourth thing is a big spleen, and that can either manifest as discomfort in the left side of the belly under the ribs, or um, because the spleen and the stomach take up sort of the same space, when the spleen starts growing, sometimes people can feel this sensation of being full really early. And then the fifth thing is what we call B symptoms. And these are the, just the symptoms of CLL that can become bothersome to the point that people want to think about treatment. So these can be fevers or chills, drenching night sweats to the point that people wake up and have to change their pajamas, fatigue, or weight loss without trying. And until patients have one of these symptoms, we recommend observation. So we see people regularly in our office with periodic checkups, and we uh, routinely measure their blood tests. And then when people meet one of these criteria and do require treatment, we consider several things. The first is their age. The second is what other medical problems they have. The third is the genetics of their CLL. And the fourth is maybe the most important, and that's what a patient's goals are and what their preferences are. So for many patients, the first drug we reach for when someone needs treatment for CLL is called ibrutinib. And this is a pill that people take every day, and um, they continue to take it for as long as it's working. 
Some people are able to take this without many or major side effects, whereas a proportion of people do tend to have some more side effects. And we definitely, when we prescribe ibrutinib, want to hear about these things because we want to help people um, either make dose modifications that allow people to stay on the medication more effectively, or if the side effects really are not tolerable, then we think about what other medications we should be using. For a subset of patients who are um, either older, have more medical problems, or really just don't are not interested in taking a pill every day, we can use um, an approach called immunotherapy with an anti-CD20 drug. And these drugs are rituximab, obinutuzumab, and ofatumumab. So that's three mouthfuls. But uh, drugs in these categories are given by IV in a preset schedule, which varies a little bit based on which drug you're giving. And then they're given for a specified amount of time and stopped. And these, these drugs treat the CLL um, and put people into what we call a remission, meaning the disease is controlled, but it's not cured and it's likely to come back at some point in the future. So this is a good option for people who really don't like the idea of taking a medicine every day and are okay with the idea that they'll need treatment at some point again in the future. And then I'll also mention that for some subset of patients, we do con still consider um, chemoimmunotherapy because it is, um, it is able to provide a subset of patients with a kind of long-term disease control. So patients who are younger and able to tolerate chemotherapy and then also have specific um, genetic changes can do well with this combination of two chemo drugs and an anti-CD20 drug that's called FCR. And we still talk a little bit about, these pa about this combination with patients who um, would be good candidates for it. Now, when patient, after patients have had their first therapy, if we see that there's evidence that it's not working anymore or they're having a disease relapse, which is the same, same thing, we often repeat the genetic testing. And the reason is that if people have new genetic changes, we want to know about those and, and know um, which treatments are more likely to work than others. And sometimes people often, uh, sometimes doctors also want a repeat bone marrow biopsy or a repeat CT scan. And once patients are on their second line of treatment, there are lots of options. So if patients didn't receive a brutinib first, that's an option. There's also a drug called venetoclax, which um, is very effective and can induce, um, like can cause these really deep responses, meaning that people really, um, the CLL is really well controlled with it. Though that drug does require hospitalization for a lot of patients as the dose is being built up to kind of the the standard dose that we try to get patients to. Um, but once, you're, once patients are at a stable dose, they're often able to take it um, easily once a day. There are some other drugs called idelalisib and duvalisib, which are pill-based therapy. And some of, sometimes we, often, we also combine these pill-based drugs with the anti-CD20 drugs, which are the IV ones. So sometimes there's a combination of a pill-based and an IV-based drug, uh, drug combination. And then last, I'll mention that for patients who are interested, there's always the opportunity for clinical trials. And um, if that is, you know, if you're, if you're getting to the point that you're thinking about another line of therapy and wondering what all of the options are, it's a great idea to talk to your healthcare provider about what clinical trials might be available to you um, as those provide opportunities for drugs that aren't yet approved but can be very effective for treating CLL. So that's kind of the overview of how we think about CLL, what it is, and how we treat it. Oh. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rucker. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful overview of CLL and its treatment and really set the stage for today's program. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn. Ms. Flynn is a nurse educator, research and practice development National Institutes of Health Clinical Research Center. And Ms. Flynn is going to be addressing the importance of adherence, taking your treatment on schedule, barriers to taking your treatment and pills on schedule, and planning ahead. So lead time in refilling prescriptions on weekends, special occasions, travel, and holidays. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to be on the call today. I would also like to take the opportunity to welcome all of our participants on the call. Whether you're a person living with CLL or a caregiver of someone with CLL or a healthcare provider, you recognize the importance of taking medications on schedule, and I applaud you for finding out more about this important topic. As you heard from Dr. Roker, there are many different treatment options to fight chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL. In order to get the best result from your treatment, it's essential to stay on schedule with your medicine. Many of today's cancer treatments um, now come in pill form. Because they're taken by mouth, sometimes we don't think they're as important as injections or infusions given at the hospital. But in truth, cancer pills are just as important as other forms of treatment that you're receiving. And because you're responsible for these pills, staying on schedule with your treatment is especially important, whether you are at work, at home, with your family, with your friends, or on vacation. And sometimes it's not easy to stay on schedule. And so there might be many reasons why you would miss a dose of your treatment. In the busy hours of a typical day, sometimes we just forget to take a dose of our medicine. Or maybe we decide to skip a dose on purpose because of the side effects that we're experiencing. And sometimes the cost of the pills make it difficult for us to take our doses as we should. Another reason is that over time, you might be feeling better from your cancer and think that you don't need to take this medicine. However, your treatment is designed to work the best as you take it um, as directed by your doctor. And so cancer medicines um, given by mouth can also relieve symptoms that destroy um, and stop the cancer cells from growing. And whether you take your medication by a pill form or by an infusion, it's absorbed in your body, and that medicine travels throughout your body to different parts looking for those cancer cells. If it doesn't get into your body, then it can't kill those cancer cells. And so it's very important to stay on schedule. So when you're taking your pills on schedule, it's known as medication adherence. And that's getting the best results possible from your treatment. Unlike some of the cancer medicines given at your doctor's office, cancer pills put you in charge of your treatment. Um, and that means when you're at home, you're responsible for remembering or having your caregiver remind you to take those medicines as they're prescribed and on a schedule. And so how does taking my medication on schedule um, affect the results of my cancer treatment? And so the cancer pills release an active ingredient ingredient over a period of time in order to keep a steady amount of that medicine in your body. That steady level helps the pills to work correctly. And so we can think of it as hitting like refresh on our computers to refresh a web page. Um, that medication is going in your body and it's refreshing the doses, the dose in your body. So if you skip a dose, that means the level of that medicine is lowered. And when it gets low, it means that it's not fighting or treating your cancer the best that it can. On the other hand, if you take doses too close together, so if you forgot to take your morning pill and you thought, well, I'll just take two pills at dinner time, um, this extra medicine can lead to more side effects. Um, and for this reason, when you forget to take a dose of your pill, it can be dangerous to take an extra dose. So if, if you ever forget to take a dose of your medication, or if you're going to be more than an hour or two late taking your medicine, it's important to, to know what to do in those types of situations. And so the next time that you're in the office with your healthcare team, ask them um, or the pharmacist when you're picking up the medication, what should I do if I am going to be delayed taking this medicine or if I forget to take a dose? And each of the cancer pills, um, Ha, uh, cancer treatment have their own unique schedule. And so we can't just say, oh, if you forget one, take two next time, or don't worry about that one. Um, and then some of them need to be taken on an empty stomach, and some of them need to be taken with food. So it's important at your medical visits to ask your healthcare team, how should I take these pills? Um, and can you help me with the schedule? Um, sometimes, Having cancer isn't our only um, 
uh, health, health condition that we have. Some of you might have high blood pressure or might have diabetes, and so you're juggling multiple medications. Talk to your healthcare team to see how you can um, have a system for all of your medications and have one list of all of your medications. And what I encourage my patients to do to have on that list is not just the name of the medication, but the dose that they're taking, when they should take that, um, what times they should take that uh, medication, and if they need to take that medication with a glass of water, or if they need to wait two hours after eating a meal before they take it, and then the physician that prescribed that medication for them. And the reason that I ask them to write the physician that prescribed that medication for them is so that when they need a refill, they know exactly who to call. And on that list of medications also include um, any herbal or dietary supplements that you're taking, any vitamins. Um, in the United States, we're heading into winter, and so um, that's a, a peak time for colds and flu. Make sure that you have those medicines written down. Um, and the pharmacist and your healthcare team can help you um, manage those medications. Um, and if there's any potential interactions between your, your cancer medication and maybe a cold medicine, they can help you with that. And look at your pills when you pick them up from the pharmacy. Do you sometimes have trouble taking pills um, if they're too large? Um, instead of just going ahead and crushing those pills, um, ask your pharmacist or physician, is it okay to break this pill in half? Can I crush it and put it into pudding? Or maybe the alternative is that they prescribe three smaller pills for you that are easier for you to manage taking. And then other things that uh, play into the treatment um, our cancer schedule is how do you feel about your cancer? Do you believe this medication or combinations of medications are helping you? Hopefully that answer is yes, but sometimes that answer is no and I'm not really sure. It's difficult to take sometimes multiple pills or treatments a day um, if you have questions about the goals of your treatment or how that treatment is helping you. So I encourage you and your, your um, caregiver to ask questions to your healthcare team and get them answered. Um, sometimes you have to ask them um, more than once to fully understand them. And then as we go into the holiday season, um, sometimes um, it's, it's a great celebratory um, time of year for people and sometimes it's not. So are you feeling um, depressed? Are you still maybe in shock from your cancer diagnosis? We know that this can influence your medication schedule. You might be tempted to skip a dose because you think that it doesn't matter. Well, I'm here to tell you that you are worth fighting for and that it does matter if you take your medications on time. So please try and develop a schedule with your healthcare team and stick to it. And um, as you... Um, are thinking about prescription refills or maybe traveling on the weekend um, or for a longer period of time, it can be easy to skip a dose or forget a dose around these times. And so I have a couple suggestions for keeping your pills on schedule. The first one is to get organized. Pill boxes are very helpful for keeping your pills in order. Um, if you have a lot of medications, you might need to get two pill boxes have that medication list, and maybe you put a check mark after each time you take that medication. I had a young adult cancer patient who had a hard time remembering to take his pills, and so when a family member couldn't be with him during the daytime, he would take a picture on his phone and send it to his mom and dad to say, yes, I took that dose, so they wouldn't have to remind him about taking his medication. There's all sorts of creative ways um, to remember your medications. With your watch, you can set an alarm or your phone. Some medication bottles have timers on them to help you. And by establishing a routine, it's easier to stay in that routine and stick to your medication schedule. And when you're traveling, sometimes we travel between time zones. And so what I tell my patients that if you're, if you're traveling, you know, between maybe one or two time zones, try and stay on where you originally live if it's one or two hours. 
Um, if it's if you're going to be spending an extended time, uh, maybe you're traveling six, eight hours away um, with time zones, you might want to consider switching time zones. Um, talk to your healthcare provider to see which one works best for your medications and for your schedule. And then um, as I'm wrapping up, just be sure to take an extra couple doses of your medication whenever you're, whenever you're traveling. Um, we never know when snowstorms, rainstorms, um, delays with airplanes or airports might happen. And so we don't want you to be at an airport stranded for a day or two and not have enough of your medications. So be sure to take a couple extra doses with you. And finally, talk with your medical care team if you have any questions about your medications. Um, perhaps you can't afford your cancer medication. Groups like Cancer Care um, are here to help you. And so, in summary, you are worth fighting for, so please take your medications on schedule. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lynn. That was really outstanding and really a lot of information for everybody and really very engaging for people to think about really how important it is to actually follow the um, instructions in terms of taking your pills on schedule, how important that is, and what a difference it makes for each of you. So um, thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Uh, Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is both a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. And she's clinical research manager, Division of Medical Affairs, Department of Cancer Survivorship, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Um, and Dr. Palos is going to address taking charge of your treatment schedule, practical help from family, partners, friends, and caregivers, ways your pharmacy and pharmacist may help, and key questions to ask and re-ask your healthcare team about adherence. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Good afternoon to our listeners, our fellow speakers, and Dr. Messner. Today we've been talking about a topic that can have significant impact on the outcomes patients will achieve, taking charge of your treatment schedule. That's the topic for today. So let's take a moment to reflect on that statement. Taking charge, what does that mean to you? And that statement, does that statement when we say it, taking charge of your treatment schedule, does it mean the same thing to your healthcare providers and to your family members as it means to you? Patients, survivors, caregivers, family members, and providers often have different reactions to conversations about whether to be or not to be involved in decisions concerning treatment and nursing care. And at times, those discussions may be completely opposite of each other, which we all may guess can lead to frustration, confusion, anger, avoidance, and at times just plain silence. So how can we be sure that patients and families and providers all communicate effectively with each other when planning such services? In the next few moments, I'll provide an overview of suggestions that may help facilitate communication between the patient and the family and healthcare team, and then I'll summarize by identifying a few tips uh, for taking charge of your treatment schedule. When we talk about a treatment schedule, though, remember it's only not only medications that we're talking about. We're talking about the appointments, multiple appointments that go along with um, seeing the different healthcare team members who are going to prescribe the different treatment regimens. There are dietary needs sometimes that accompany taking those medications or those treatments. There are um, child care services if you have children and, you know, you need to be going back for multiple appointments with different members of the healthcare team to get that uh, treatment. That also becomes a, a, a concern. The work schedule becomes a concern, and then as well as um, financial concerns. And we heard uh, one of our previous speakers address that a bit. Dr. Roker provided the background information needed to understand the differences and similarities between first, second, and third line treatment, as well as an excellent overview of the treatments for chronic, well, for CLL. Ms. Flynn addressed the importance of following the treatment schedule, the challenges influencing um, how to keep that schedule, and gave excellent solutions on how to effectively manage those challenges. The messages given in all the presentations, though, emphasize the critical role patients and family members have in maintaining those treatment schedules. By having discussions on what and how to take care of your treatment schedule, it will help the family members and providers make decisions about the schedules and that are based on the patient's preference. And it'll also determine whether or not the patient wishes to be an active participant in their treatment. 
One underlying theme from both speakers' discussion is the importance of effective communication between the patients and the healthcare team. Communication is a key factor, so making sure everyone understands an individual's choices and preference for, for decision-making can also help in trying to move toward um, excellent outcomes. However, as we all know, many of us struggle to have serious and planned discussions about this topic. So let me begin by providing some practical tips on how you can support your loved one in determining their role. First, clear patient-centered communication is, be is based on trust established between the patient, family, and healthcare team. So it would be beneficial to identify one member of the family and one from the healthcare team that you as the patient feel most comfortable with in terms of a trusting relationship. And for healthcare providers listening on in this call, please keep, it, keep in mind that it is extremely challenging for patients and their families to trust and communicate openly if it's the first time all of you have met. Second, in discussing your choices, let your healthcare team know who you would like to participate in the discussion. One key family member or caregiver, your children, or certain extended family members, or perhaps even friends that have been with you throughout the journey. Yet, Yes, patient confidentiality and privacy are important in our medical world, yet we need to remember at this point of the cancer experience, the patient's wishes are of greatest importance, and we must try to respect them as much as possible. Third, when the decisions have been made to talk treatment schedules, remember the timing, the setting or location, and the style of communication. Remember all those are key factors to consider by the patient and the family. One way to open that conversation about whether or not someone wants to be an active participant and take charge, is just simply to ask, would you please let me know if you have any concerns or previous experiences or beliefs or values that will affect how we discuss this topic with you and how we provide our care to you. I would like to remind our listeners that an unseen and often overlooked resource is the pharmacist or pharmacy who distribute the medication or other types of treatment. One of the first and most important questions to ask your pharmacist is about the treatment schedule. Is it reasonable for you to follow? And of course, you're going to ask that of your healthcare provider. The next key question to ask is about the form of delivery. Is it a capsule? Do you have the ability to swallow it? Another critical question is what are the side effects from this medication? And are there possible interactions from combining your regular medications, say for hypertension, arthritis, or diabetes, with the cancer treatment medications? Pharmacists and patients can negotiate and also identify one pharmacy or single location which will provide all medications. This will help the pharmacist track your medication and progress over time and watch for possible drug um, interactions. So I know sometimes patients are treated in one facility that may be very far from their community. So it's good to establish a relationship of communication between your local or home pharmacist as well as the one that's your uh, pharmacist at your treating facility. Ask again about your ask the pharmacist about the use of pill dispensers, reminders to help organize your medications. The pill dispensers are really good because it's a visual cue uh, that remind the patient and the family that every patient must take their um, prescription meds. Another new technology that's coming up are mobile text messages. Um, so you might even ask your pharmacy if that option is available to you. Discuss the options of early refills whenever possible or the restrictions regarding refills of medications, especially for things such as opioids. So to be an active participant, here's something that you can do that's reasonable. You can make a medication list, including the name of the drug, the dosage, when to take it, and what condition it is for. This is especially important for those diagnosed with other types of chronic conditions, such as diabetes and hypertension, um, arthritis, others. It can be challenging to take multiple medications for multiple conditions. Such a list would help keep track of all the medication and their purpose. It could also then be shared with your healthcare team and family members. Ask questions about your medications, especially if it's a new one. Ask about the name. I mean, sometimes people get confused. Why does the bottle say this, but my doctor talked about this? Well, there's trade names and there's generic names. So if you need some clarification about that, just ask. Don't be, you know, don't feel that any question is, is not an appropriate question. All questions are important if you have that question. You can also ask, can you take the medication with other meds? Does it need to be stored in a certain way? What food, drinks, or activities should be avoided while taking this med? Then you can also ask your pharmacist how soon should the medicine be, begin to work and for how long, and what are the signs to show that show that the medication is working. 
write down the responses, keep notes, share them with your caregiver, and refer them when needed. So a question many of you may have by now is, okay, I know all the importance of taking charge, but how do I but how to deal with them so I can get back on track for taking medications? Well, I'll share some tips that I've learned and um just through a personal experience with my mom. She's a um her primary caregiver. She's 83 years old and as she's gotten older, the number of medications she needs has also increased. So we've gone through many trials, failures and successes, which I'll share with you as lessons learned. First, we learned that it is truly important to take the meds as scheduled. This is now a mantra for the entire family, nuclear family, extended church family members and friends. There are different ways to keep track of the schedule. We've heard about the alarms and electronic um, devices. If you're not a techie type, you can prefer and prefer written aids. Make a poster of your meds. Color code them to indicate the purpose. Note the time, dose, and how to take them by mouth, by swallowing, by dissolving, uh, whichever way it's been asked of, of you to take it. There are also different ways to keep to organize your medications with the pill containers by day or week. The methods will depend on your preferences and needs. And some of these methods are also going to be important if you're in a work setting. Some of you may be thinking, ah, that seems like quite a bit of work. And yes, but if done up front, it will minimize the risks of missed doses, incorrect meds uh, being taken, or pills not being available when needed. So now let's continue to lesson two. We've learned that the obstacles may change and increase over time in the course of a chronic disease. That's important because that some our medications, as we go through uh, the cancer experience, will tend to change, and so we that's going to make it even more challenging to keep track and to organize all the medications. So the third lesson learned is to always look for new and better ways to deal with these challenges. For example, again, one extremely healthy way is to maintain ongoing communication between the local physician or healthcare team, the caregivers, the family members, and then again also with the treating facility. The fourth lesson learned is we've learned the importance of planning ahead of time whenever a schedule is whenever travel is scheduled. Travel can be the 40-minute drive to a daughter or it can be a 5-hour flight for 10 days out of state. So here's a few tips for preparing for a trip. Keep a small carry-on bag with all the medications that either are stored in your prescription container or in their original bottles, depending on the length of the trip and the route of transportation. Keep a small index card in the family member's wallet as well as in your own wallet, listing all the medications, the dosages, time to be taken, and when to take them. You can also write where um, the name of the physician or the pharmacy where you got the medication the telephone number, and any emergency information for each provider or pharmacy. You can ask your physician to write a letter stating that he or she has prescribed the following medication and have a list of the medications. Again, making copies of the letter and giving one to each primary caregiver. When you're flying, be sure and keep that medication bag uh, as a small carry-on. Keep it with you. Um, and then it's important that when to keep a schedule of when the refills are due. This is very important and helps minimize the risk of being in another state or country and running out of medications. It's also helpful to ask your pharmacy about their policies regarding refills if you lose your meds or run out of pills while out of town. Some pharmacies will pro provide enough refills to last until you get back home or when, so you can reach your prescribing um, physician. And the fifth most most important lesson that we've learned is to communicate, communicate, communicate with the prescribing provider, the pharmacist, the caregivers, and the patient. Also, um, so finally, and most important, keep tabs on your own physical and mental health by taking your medication and going through these treatment schedules. Remind yourself to maintain a balance. This is also not only for the patient, for our caregivers and our, and our providers. Plan ahead and prioritize depending, again, on the patient's situation and medications. My colleagues and I look forward to hearing from you and the suggestions you may have for, taking, for keeping and taking charge of your own treatment schedule. Thank you for allowing me to share these thoughts with you. This concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was extraordinary and wonderful. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. And, um, again, a lot of very important, helpful tips and things to think about. It really is very informative. I have to say all of these speakers have been incredibly informative in terms of just looking at this subject much more carefully. 
Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Uh, Patricia De- Kaufman. And Ms. Kaufman is co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc. And she will be describing um, CLL Society's free expert access program and CLL-specific patient support groups. And if you're not familiar with the CLL Society, it's just a wonderful organization um, with lots of resources for people living with CLL. So it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman. The CLL Society is here to help with a website full of patient-friendly resources. Whether you are newly diagnosed or have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your disease process. We teach, we explain, and we connect. We know that smart patients get smart care, so we've developed tools to make you a smarter patient. As media, we cover all the major hematology conferences where we interview the world's top CLL researchers on cutting-edge advances in treatment options, and we explain what this research means to CLL patients. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms. We cut through the confusion with our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can acquire an understanding of the language of CLL. Got your lab results from your healthcare provider, but you don't know what they mean? Compare them to our chart of normal lab values to understand what they mean. Let us connect you with other CLL patients. The CLL Society has more than 25 CLL-specific support groups meeting monthly across the country, and 10 more are currently forming. Plan to attend one of our 12 upcoming patient educational forums. This is where we gather the best minds in CLL to provide you with a half-day, in-depth look at the many facets of CLL treatment. If you are one of those patients who does not have access to a CLL expert, please come to our website and apply to be considered as a candidate for our no-cost expert access program. We have dozens of openings currently available. The research and short surveys that we do on our website become your voice, informing healthcare providers, CLL researchers, and the pharmaceutical industry as to what CLL patients really want in their treatment. Visit our website today to get the kind of knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. Thank you so much, Ms. Kaufman. That was really outstanding. And just it's a wonderful resource for all of you who may not be familiar with it. Um, they do have this wonderful, um, the CL Society's free expert access program. And it's a scholarship program. And simply do um, connect with them at clsociety.org. And um, it's just wonderful that you'd get a consult on your particular um, treatment for your CLL, and they also have a number of CLL-specific patient support groups as well. So do take advantage of this wonderful resource. Um, and um, I'm going to say a few words about um, about uh, cancer care services, and then um, we're going to um, get ready to take your questions. So please, you know, prepare your questions. Um, uh, you know, and um, uh, so cancer care is a national organization, um, and we provide a host of services um, to people living with COL and living with cancer. Um, we offer practical and financial assistance. So financial assistance is for people in the U.S., in the United States. All the other services I'm going to describe are for people all over the world. Um, we also provide counseling services um, in, on your, um, and um, those services are provided by oncology social workers. They're especially trained to assist you. Um, and uh, they offer just a host of services from individual counseling or a chance to talk with someone individually about your concerns. To um, and she, um, we also offer um, services um, in support groups. We have over 138 online support groups, and we have um, and those groups include groups for people with CLL for um, older persons living with CLL, for younger persons living with CLL, um, for caregivers. Um, so those are wonderful groups to be aware of. Um, we have general um, hematology blood cancer groups as well. Um, and so, um, and groups on all different types of cancers in case you know other people who may be concerned about getting um, those services. 
Um, we also, um, of course, uh, have these programs. We offer them on a regular basis, often a couple of weeks, actually, except during holiday times and things like that. And we also um, have a number of publications and, of course, a very active website. So this is a wonderful resource for all of you to access um, on our programs. And uh, actually, um, it's just um, nice for all of you to have us in your pocket, just as you would have the CLL Society as a resource to contact. And if one of us doesn't have the resource you need, you can be sure we're going to connect you back to um, other organizations. I should also mention that Kinsker has a copay foundation as well as offering financial assistance. So that, um, and if we don't have the specific copay for what you need, we will connect you to the organizations that do. So um, you can use both the CLL Society and Kids Care as your one-stop shopping in terms of getting on to other places that you need to get to, and all those services are free. And now we do have time for questions. I'm going to um, ask uh, Crystal to bring all of our speakers on board, and. Um, and uh, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get your question, um, then uh, we will give you at the very end ways to get your questions answered. So, Crystal, if you could explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Sue O. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure who to ask. Maybe Dr. Roker, because she did the overview. Um, I'm a social worker, and I've been living with TLL for 12 years. And my dad just died from myelofibrosis a few weeks ago. And his brother, my uncle, died from ALL in 1993. He was 52. And Conti Rai is my doctor, thankfully, um, I haven't had a chance to talk to him because I just came home from Florida and I wanted to know, obviously it's in my family and, um, can I get like myelofibrosis or multiple myeloma from having CLL? Well, that's an excellent question. I'm sure many people worry about that and they're going to ask, um, Dr. Roka to start in addressing that question. Um, and could yeah, you just indicate, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Roka. Yes. I'm so sorry to hear about your loss, and it sounds like your family has been going through a lot. Um, while while we know that there there's some suggestion that CLL may, li, might live in families, having one hematologic malignancy, we don't think puts people at risk for other cancers in the blood system. So I um, while I totally understand that that family history, um, you know, is is obviously weighing heavily on you. I think that the CLL piece of it isn't necessarily going to contribute to your chance of having another cancer. That being said, for all of our patients with CLL, we do recommend that they undergo all of their usual healthcare screening, so mammograms and colonoscopies and pap smears when they're indicated from both your age and, and your history of those tests. And then we also know that um, patients with CLL are at um, a slightly increased risk of non-melanoma skin cancers. So we also recommend that you see um, a dermatologist once a year for an annual exam. But we don't think that there is um, necessarily an increased risk of other blood cancers. Thank you. And do any of our other speakers want to comment on this concern? No, I think Dr. Roker addressed it. Okay. Thank, you. Thank, you. Okay. thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And I, I should say that often this is a question that does come up on many of our calls where people are concerned if there is a family pattern that, that's going to affect them. And so I think uh, thank you, Dr. Roker, for addressing this so clearly. And um, we encourage you to, of course, discuss this with your healthcare team. And also because you've had so many losses, we um, do offer brief and counseling here at Cancer Care, as do many other organizations. And so that could be helpful. Grief counseling, someone to talk to about these losses. It's not so easy to lose relatives. Of course, you know, it's very painful. And uh, many of us can relate to what you're talking about in terms of this loss and these losses, and we want to be sure that you are aware that there is free counseling available for anyone who's um, dealing with um, with um, a, a loss or, 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 or a death in the family. So thank you for your question, and it raises so many different issues for us, so thank you. 
And it's actually, a, it could be its own call, actually, frankly, because it's an important topic um, that you've raised. And our next question, Crystal. Thank you. Our next question comes from Edmund E. Your line is open. Uh, yes, I'd like to know what the uh, differences and similarities are between follicular lymphoma and CLL. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Roker, could you address that? Yeah, absolutely. So follicular lymphoma is another kind of lymphoma. Um, and in some ways, I, I can totally understand how that's a confusing differentiation. Um, they're both indolent lymphomas, meaning that they um, are uh, cancers that affect the lymph nodes. And follicular lymphoma often is predominantly in the lymph nodes, less so in the blood. And when I talked a little bit about that flow cytometry, that sorting um, technology that we have where you look at the surface of the cells, one of the big differences is that follicular lymphoma looks different than CLL cells. And there are you know, different sets of drugs that are approved for follicular lymphoma, um, though a lot of the same teachings about CLL kind of apply to follicular lymphoma in that it's indolent or slow-growing, and often um, people are observed kind of at the beginning of their treatment course. Thank you. Um, and um, we have um, another online uh, online question, and this it's a question actually for Dr. Roker, um, so a lot of medical questions here. Now, how can we tell the difference between joint pain caused by brutinib and other joint pain? Does it make a difference in treatment? Absolutely. So this is a question that we deal with a lot in um, for our patients and thinking about whether um, that joint pain is really related or whether it's due to something else that causes joint pain like arthritis or things like that. And to make it even a little more complicated, we know that the joint pains that can happen with a brutinib often affect the joints that are already kind of hurting. So, you know, if you have a bad left knee, if a brutinib is going to cause joint pain, it might, it might be your left knee. Um, what we are approached to that is often to stop the drug for some amount of time and see if the pain is getting better. Um, and we, of course, would want you to talk to your healthcare provider about it. Don't just try stopping it on its own because we also need to make sure that um, the disease is well enough controlled that stopping the medication isn't dangerous. But sometimes that can be one approach and seeing if the pain gets better. Then the second piece is that when you initially start ibrutinib, you can also get um, higher uric acid levels as the cancer cells start to break up. And that can actually cause gout. So if you're having one joint that's really red and angry and um, hurting a lot, definitely let your healthcare provider know right away because that's something that we can treat with different medicines um, and get under control more quickly. Excellent. And any other type of, uh, in terms of the person's functioning, um, do so there would really be more a rearrangement of their medications versus they're doing any type of supportive care services or physical therapy or anything like that, that wouldn't, it would be more appropriate for us to identify to take a step by is there a step by step approach here? Yeah, of course. So, you know, if it's kind of that mild pain that you're able to live with, then we definitely try some of the more conservative things first. So, physical therapy and, um, you know, stretching. And, you know, I, I can't say that there is a clinical trial that has proven yoga or stretching to be effective, but certainly I've had patients say that that's really helpful um, and kind of trying that first. If the pain is really, you know, affecting your ability to, you know, walk or function or, or live comfortably, then, of course, that's when we talk about whether the, the medicine needs to be held for an amount of time or, or the, if the dose needs to be decreased, something like that. Thank you. Um, and would anyone else like to comment on that? Okay. And no, thank um, you. the question... Okay, thank you. Okay, and then we have a question from another online participant. Um, I'm about to begin treatment with a brutinib. I take two 1,600 milligram capsules of turmeric daily, 1 a.m., 1 p.m. Any known adverse interactions between turmeric and a brutinib? Um, so 
we typically uh, have patients avoid turmeric when they're on a brutinib because it can cause more bleeding problems. We know that bleeding is a side effect of a brutinib and um, turmeric almost acts like ibuprofen or like a, um, a drug that kind of affects the um, platelet function. So we typically ask people to avoid any turmeric while they're on a brutinib. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that helps. that's helpful to our uh, caller. And all these questions that you've been asking, um, please take this information back to treating healthcare team. But I hope that that's, that's a particularly very important um, point that Dr. Roker has made here. So um, please um, take that to consideration here. And um, so we, I just want to conclude with a question that we all came up with before the call started, and that is the cost of your care as being somehow, obviously, that this gets talked about a great deal and um, that people often feel, um, and we have questions from, uh, from um, some of you online about the questions of how do you manage the cost of care. So I'm going to ask, um, I'll start with that just to say that there are, um, I just want everyone to know that there are resources out there for anyone who's struggling with the cost of their care or has questions about how they're going to pay for this. And I guess, Dr. Rook, we, we talked earlier, do you want to just comment that it's okay to talk to your physician about this and that will refer you appropriately so that people get that oh, sense okay. right up front of the permission? Yeah, of course. We um, we hear this concern all the time, and we work with a big team of people who are um, more than happy to help people figure out ways to make sure that medication is affordable. And it's an important consideration. So if that's a concern, you absolutely should bring it up to your healthcare providers. And do any of our other speakers want to address that before I go into it? Or okay. Well, um, so basically, there are lots of resources out there. Um, so although there's a lot that you may hear about not being there, um, there are a lot of things very much still in place. And so we do have um, we have also we have federal programs to help people. We have VA benefit veterans benefits. We have um, Medicare, we have um, Medicaid, um, which people often don't understand um, about some of the um, um, allowances and, and how many people qualify for Medicaid who didn't think they did just because of the cost of their care. Um, there are city and state programs to help with um, the cost of care. There are private copay foundations. There are organizations like Cancer Care that actually give financial grants to people to help them with things like transportation or with um, helping with the cost of the care or the pain medication. Um, and so there, um, th this is a huge area of concern, and the Affordable Care Act does still exist. Um, the Affordable Care Act, often called the Obamacare, that's still both of them are the same, and they both exist still, and it is still people are still um, able to re sign up for that. So I just want you to know that there are programs out there. Also, if you do bring it up to your physician or healthcare team, they will then, of course, um, they will then, of course, refer you to the financial specialists, patient navigators, oncology social workers, oncology nurses, the whole team of people at their institution, because they want you to get the care you need. So that's important to hear, and I, I just want you to know that um, that that's just something we want you to all feel that. Um, um, is out there for you. And if you have questions about any of you about the cost of your care, um, you can start by just calling Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. And for our international participants, although we're not able to give you direct financial assistance, we can direct you to resources within your country or internationally that can provide care for you. So you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. And does anyone want to add to that? Did I leave something out that should be mentioned here? There are also, I just, I just realized there were some programs for older adults. There are programs for um, many different populations of people who may need, um, you know, just financial assistance, just to be aware of that. So I want to thank our speakers. They've been extraordinary. I want to thank each of them for spending time with us and just being such wonderful speakers. What a great team this is. So they can't hear us applauding, but we um, really, here we are. We really think the world of each of them. I also want to thank all of you who both, um, called in on the phone and also um, posted your questions um, on the, um, online as well. And um, I want to thank you all for listening. And I, and I know there are many of you who still have questions, and I know some questions are still coming in, so let me just give you resources to get your questions answered. Um, the CLL Society, Inc. is a wonderful resource for any um, medical questions you may have. But I also want you to first go to your healthcare team. 
they know your medical history the best, and they're actually most able to help you. So I would definitely um, encourage all of you to use your healthcare team to con- to ask any questions, even ask them questions you asked today, and um, they will be sure to help you with your getting your questions answered. Um, and um, between your healthcare team, the CL Society, Cancer Care, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, um, and there are many others. And you, when you get your evaluation at the end of today's program, all these resources that we mentioned during the program and in terms of additional financial assistance resources as well, all that will be listed in your evaluation. So even though we'd like you to fill out your evaluation form, we also use it to give you any additional information that we think of that you should really have um, at your fingertips to be able to use to get any additional questions answered. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. We do have another program coming up on CLL, and it is for older persons living with CLL, and it's on Thursday, December 13th, and it's actually from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We have actually two programs that day, so that particular program is from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, which may actually work well for some of you on the call. Um, so um, I know some of you have already signed up for the program, but in case you weren't aware of it, you again will be getting notification of that when you get the evaluation form. Again, thank you all for participating, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.